invite you to go back to the first Peter chapter 4 passage I read just a little bit ago to you. If you have read Stephen Covey's book, it was published quite a while ago now. The title is The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And he has seven traits if you want to be highly successful. The number two trait in the book is this principle. Begin, begin with the end in mind. For Covey, if you want to be successful at your job and you want to be successful at your career or if you're on a project or you're writing a book, and you must start with a clear understanding, Covey says, about what the finished product will look like. So in the book, he asks the question with that in mind. He says, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, to get where you want to go in life, to be what you want to be when you grow up, you have to make sure, and this is his metaphor, your ladder is leaning against the right wall. If your ladder is not leaning against the right wall, he says, and if that's true, then every step you take will be a wrong step going in the wrong direction at a faster pace. In other words, you'll be going somewhere, but you won't be going where you want to go. The Apostle Peter has a very similar principle in mind in the text that I just read you. He's going to write to us. In fact, he does in verse 7. He says this, The end of all things is at hand. And then the next word is, therefore. (laughs) Therefore. See, here's what Peter says. If you want to live like Jesus, and you want to live for Jesus in a very difficult world, then you need to begin with the end in mind. And by the end, he means the end of time. He means the end where you're going to stand before Jesus. That when Jesus comes or you stand before him, and you're going to give an account of your life. He says that's where you need to start. See, you need to look to the future tense in order to properly live in the present tense, he would say. You need to have one eye focused this morning on the day that someday that you will stand before the throne of the Lord Jesus. And then on the other side of it, you need to have your other eye focused on the presence. So one day you're going to stand before Jesus in the future. And right now, though... You're going to stand for Jesus right now in the presence. And here's what Peter says. You have to have both. See, you have to have the end in mind. You have to live today in light of someday. And you have to be able to say, Lord, I'm living today because it could be tomorrow or sooner that I stand before you and I get an account of my life. Peter says this again at the end of his second epistle. In 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are going to be dissolved, let me put you into the future tense. Let me put you in the day when there no more heaven, no more earth. It's all going to be created again, renewed as God has planned. He says, look forward to that day. He goes, in light of the future, here's what he says. What sort of people ought you to be in all holiness and godliness? You know, in light of what God's going to do in the future and all God's going to do when you stand before him and all the recreation he's going to make, how should you live your life today? Now, see, for Peter, this wasn't just a theory. It wasn't just something that he's preached to other people and, and gave them this principle that you have to begin with the end in mind. See, Peter lived this himself. He learned this, I think, from the Lord Jesus. Remember after the resurrection when Peter had gone back to fishing and he kind of had given up following the Lord Jesus because he had denied him and he didn't think that he could do that anymore or the Lord would want him to after all the bad things he had done. Jesus is on the shore. They're in their boat. He comes in after the the big gather of fish that he gives to them and he has a talk with Peter 
And as they're talking on the shore, here's what Peter is told by Jesus. Ready? He says, when you were a young man, at the end of verse 20, you went to wherever you went, wanted to go. But listen to this. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him what kind of death he would glorify God. You see, when Peter's restarting his discipleship program, he's going to follow Jesus again. Here's the very first principle Jesus wants. you got to begin with the end in mind, Peter. Let me project you into the future. You want to follow me? Let me tell you how it's going to end. You are going to give your life for me. And they're going to stretch out your hands, and you're not going to want to go there. See, that's the kind of death you're going to die, and you're going to glorify me. And here's what Jesus says to Peter. Here's how you're going to start following me again with the end in mind. you got to see this. If you want to live for me now, you're going to have to see that you're going to die for me later. It's important to Jesus that you, if you're a believer this morning, that you get this principle down. Here's how we begin with the end in mind. See, and if you have the end in mind then your life's going to be different and you're going to live for Jesus differently. John Doan said this in one of his holy sonnets. What if the present, meaning the present time, was the world's last night? What if today was not just the end, but what if it was your end? See, there's two types of eschatology. There's doctrinal eschatology and there's personal eschatology. And both are mentioned in Peter's life. Here's what Jesus said. Your personal eschatology, I'm going to tell you, this is how you're going to die. But listen, not just that you're going to die, but what if before you die, what if Jesus came today? What if you would stand before his throne today, before this church service was out? He came today, and he took you up to be with him in his throne, and you stood before him. Would you be ready to do that? See, here's what we have to do as Christians. We have to begin with the end in mind. Ecclesiastes in Solomon's Wisdom, chapter 7 and verse 2, records these words. It is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral home than to go to a party. And by all means, that, that doesn't sound like anything that we would agree with in our day. How many of you, if you had a choice, which one would you want to go to? I mean, you'd obviously pick the party. But here's what Solomon says. You know why it's better to be at a funeral than at a party? Listen to what he says. Because death, meaning this is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. You see the principle? He says if you want to live right, you want to live, live in light of the future. Live in light of the fact that every one of us die. Every one of us are going to stand before God. And, and, and that's great wisdom. Because what we need to do to keep us on the right track and doing all that God wants us to do is to live with the end in mind. So you might ask, Pastor Walker, how can I live that way? How can I, as a believer, live with the end in mind? I want to show you what it would look like on a daily basis. I don't want to just give you a principle or a theory. I want to flesh it out for you. I want you to see from the words of the Apostle Peter what it would look like if you're actually doing it. So you can measure that and say, hey, if I go home and practice what the pastor said today, how will I know that I'm really doing it? Well, Peter doesn't leave us guessing. He's going to tell us three things, and I want to unpack them each one at a time. He says, if you're going to begin with the end in mind, here's how you know that you are doing it. You will be serious about prayer, you'll be serious about people, and you'll be serious about purpose. Let me show you each one of them. Verse 7, as we already read, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, see, living in light of that. 
beginning with the ended mind, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled, sober-minded, serious, right? Be disciplined, be serious. Six times in the New Testament, sober-minded is used. And a lot of them are used in First and Second Peter. Why would we be we need to be sober. And what does that have to do with Jesus coming again? And more particularly, what does it have to do with prayer? Jesus could come any moment. And, and listen, Peter could have said a lot of things. Jesus is coming back and it's imminent. It could be any moment. And he could have said a bunch of things. Witness to people, right? Give the gospel out. He didn't say those things. You know what he said? I want you to be sober-minded and self-controlled and apply that to your prayers. How are those connected? Hold your finger here, if you would, and I think Jesus can help us. In Luke chapter 21, in verses 34 through 36, Jesus, I think, makes the connection we're looking for. In Luke 21, verse 34, here's what Jesus says in light of the fact when he's telling his own disciples that he's going to come back. In light of the end, here's how Jesus says you can begin. Watch yourselves, Luke 21, 34, Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, cares of this life. See, it's not just bad things. The cares of this life, the the word bios is the word life. It means everything that you do, good things, your job, making money, your house, your vacations, all the things that cares, the cares of this life, the things that you get wrapped up in. Here's what he says, that that day, what day? The day that he comes back. The day that you stand before him, come on you suddenly like a trap. What an analogy, right? When I was a youth pastor, I did a sermon series one time for our youth group on snares, traps. And so there's a guy in my church who was an outdoorsman and a hunter. And so I had him bring in a whole series of traps. I think I had a bunch of, I, I remember four of them, but I think I had like seven or eight of them. And I had all the way down to, I think I started with an ant trap and then went to a mouse trap. And then I went to a coon, raccoon trap and then up to a wolf trap. And the last one all the way at the end was a bear trap. And the bear trap was as big, you know, wide as this pulpit. And it had, you know, it would come and it would, oh, man, it made a noise. I mean, I, he actually set it off and it, it snapped and the whole thing got off the floor. It was so violent. And, and, and people go, Woo, wow. And, but I, I, as I remember him doing all those traps and setting them off, I said, listen, I know bears don't think like we do or anything. I said, but how could you miss that? I mean, you're walking along. So you're, I mean, you can't. I mean, it's so huge. I mean, you don't see the big teeth on there. You think that's good? But I realized, you know, when you have traps, you know, most of the time you don't see them because they put stuff over it. You know, you put debris over it. You put leaves over it, whatever it is. And most of the time you don't see the traps. But there are some that they don't cover them up. And they still have things get trapped in them. And I'm going, okay, you, maybe you didn't see it, but why would you do that? And you know what I found out? Well, traps are not just all that you cover them up. Some traps are laid out open so you can see them, but they have bait in them. I'm saying like rabbits, squirrels, you go in there and knock the stick out, really? I mean, you've got to have that carrot that bad. And, and they do. I mean, they go in there. The mice want it. I've had, you know, in past places I've lived, I've had a mice. We, we catch mice. If you get them in your house, maybe you've had that problem. Um, you get a mouse. There's a mouse in a trap, and it's dead. And there's a trap next to it. And the other mouse comes, seeing his buddy in the trap dead, 
bites the trap. And I go, I can't believe it. I mean, I heard, I was, one time it was downstairs, and I heard the trap go off. And I go, oh, yeah, we got one. Finally got rid of these things. And then, there's, then 30 seconds later, snap. I go, you can't be serious. I mean, you got the trap there. And I said, dude, you see the guy with the stuff in his mouth? It wasn't worth it. Right? And here's what Jesus says. Be careful. Watch out. Traps. See, there are traps out there. And, and sometimes, I, you know, as a pastor, I say, I look, how does that person didn't see that? You didn't see that trap in your marriage? You didn't see that trap? You didn't see, you didn't see the big teeth on that thing when you were watching that stuff on Internet? You didn't see that? I mean, you didn't know that was going to happen. You, thought, you really thought that was worth the risk of it? You go, you go back to 1 Peter with me. You know what's preceding our paragraph? A whole list of traps. Look at verses 1 through 6, and I'm going to start with verse 3. For the time that is past, in other words, you used to do this, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's what you used to do. You used to fall in these traps all the time when you, before you became a Christian. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. See, he says, you used to fall into these traps. You, whether you saw them or whether you just took the bait, you used to fall into these traps all the time. And you suffered all that stuff and the ruin and the hurt and the pain that it brought. You were constantly being trapped. He says, but see, listen, don't get into those traps. And, and, and so why did we read Luke's gospel? Let me tell you. Look what Jesus says about traps. How do you keep from falling into them once you become a Christian? Verse 35. For it will come upon all those who dwell in the face of the whole land, Verse 36, Luke 21. But stay awake at all times. Listen, see the participle? Praying. Do you see what he's saying? Praying that you might have strength to escape all these things and so that you might stand before the Son of Man. Here's what Jesus says. Let me make a connection for you. Ready? You want to avoid the traps? You be self-controlled and sober. For what reason? So you can escape the traps. You know what prayer does when you get on your knees after you've read the word of God? It gives you the ability to see traps in this world that has the worldly leaves and stuff all over it. You don't walk just blindly into it and step on it and say, oh, wow, I should never have done that when I raised my kids. Oh, my, how did I saw that trap and, and waste my money and my time like that. See? That's what, that's what the, the see, it, prayer, when you get on your knees and you talk to God about how he wants you to live your life, it gives you the ability to see that the trap is there. And that even though when you can see it, it also gives you the strength and the ability to not take the bait. See, if you, it, it's tempting to look at that stuff. It's tempting to watch that. It's tempting to be unfaithful in your marriage. It's tempting to think that your kids should have those values and priorities and make that the most. It's, it's tempting. But you know what? When you get on your knees and pray, God uses his word to give you the ability to escape it. See, it, it helps you stay awake so that you don't get trapped. That's why Peter uses the word self-controlled, sober. Do you know every, listen to this. Startling statistic. Every single day in America, this is just America, 30 people die from car crashes that have to do with drunk driving. Every day. That's more than one an hour. See, drunkenness, if you've ever seen someone drunk, when I lived in London, I've been downtown places, I've seen people high, I've seen people drunk. You know as well as I do that there's no clear thinking going on. They don't see very clearly. They're not seeing where they're going or what they're doing at all. They say things and do things that they otherwise probably would never have said or done. 
Why? Because they're intoxicated and it's devastating. I have seen people ruin their marriages, their lives, their children don't speak to them anymore and, and, and lost their jobs and more so, not to mention the ruining of their health. But see, it's devastating to the Christian life as well. See, if you're not serious about prayer, you run the risk of being intoxicated with the world's way of thinking and the world's way of living. And you're really not interested in heeding God's word when it comes to how he asks you to live in light of the end. And can I tell you a brief commercial? That is why I implore you to be in a small group. You know why you need to be in a small group? Here's why. Because the world gets it. If you are struggling in alcohol, a lot of people go to AA groups. And I'm not exposed, you know, espousing those groups. But let me tell you this. The world gets it that you shouldn't fight those battles by yourself. And if you want to keep yourself and your family together and your marriage and, and keep from being intoxicated with the way the world thinks and lives, you need to be in a small group. Why? Small group people help one another nullify the intoxicating, mind-altering effects of a God-indifferent and God-ignoring world. We don't need more psychotherapy, but we need theological therapy. And you can get that in a small group. You can get people to keep you accountable about being self-controlled and sober. We need each other. That's why prayer is the focus. Jesus says you, wanna, you need to begin with the end in mind. You know what that first looks like? It means someone who is very, very serious about their prayers. Secondly, here's what it means. You're also going to be serious about people. In verse 8, Peter writes this, Above all, the only time I found in the New Testament other than here that this little phrase, above all, with these words in the original language are used is James 5, 2. James says above all, and it's a word that means literally before. In other words, let me tell you how important this next thing I'm going to talk to you. It's important. It's above everything else. It's a priority. It's at the top of the list. So we could say this, last things... Right? Jesus is coming. Last things, eschatology. If you get that down and you live in light of that, it'll help you with first things. Last things help you with first things. Living with the end in mind help you understand what ought to be your priorities in this life. But if you're not living, hear me, if you're not living in light of Jesus' coming, you're going to have all the first things take to be way down the list. You're not going to see the importance of church and people and relationships and the Bible and, and serving God and all the things in this passage. You won't see it. Because you have to have last things in your life right before you understand what the first things ought to be. And here's what Peter says, one of the top first things that there are in the Christian life, is that you keep loving one another, look at the verse, earnestly. Earnestly. So we're putting the vertical and the horizontal together. We pray to God to live right with the end in mind, and here's what we do. We love God and we love people. That's what it's about. The word earnestly is a very unique word, only used a couple times in the New Testament. And interestingly enough, it means to literally stretch out, and most times, your hands, right? And the two times in the New Testament it's used, one is in Luke 22, where Jesus stretched out his hands in prayer to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the other one is also about prayer, because we just talked about it. It's about the church praying and raising their hands to God when they are praying for Peter to be released from prison in Acts 12. Both other times, including this one, I think, is about praying. It's stretching your hands out. But that's what the literal word means, to be stretched. So when he says, keep loving one another, it means you've got to work at it. It doesn't come natural 
<laughs> Sorry, it doesn't come natural to keep loving people because it's not always easy. Can I say it this way? It's a stretch. It really is. It's a stretch. It's, it's something that you have to do and you have to work at it to do it. Why? Why do we have to work at it? Why is it hard? Why do we have to be told to keep doing it? Well, he doesn't, doesn't hesitate. Look what he says. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because since, since, here's why. See the connection? Since love covers a multitude of sins. You know why? Here's a great, brilliant observation. You ready? We have to try to keep working at it earnestly because we sin. How many of you did not sin this year yet? Don't raise your hand because then you just did. Now, how many of you haven't sinned this week yet? Seriously? Ask my wife. I probably had five this morning, maybe. I don't know. You know why we have to keep loving one another and working at it? Listen, not just any kind of love, a special kind of love, a love that stretches you, one that you stretch out. You have to work at it. Why? Why do we need that? Because we sin. We sin. So Peter, this is a quotation, by the way. This is a quotation of Proverbs 10, 12, wisdom literature. You want to have the wisdom? You want to have a strategy? How do you keep loving people? The verse really goes like this, because he only said the second half. Hatred stirs up strife. You want to know if you have stretch love? How much strife are you causing? How much division are you causing? Here's what he says. Hatred stirs up strife, but, contrast, love covers all offenses. I looked it up in the Tanakh, which is the Jewish translation of the Old Testament, and they say all offenses in their version says all faults. All faults. Ah, that word all is bothersome, isn't it? It's a hard one. I was told in seminary that all means all, and that's all that all means. That's tough. All, all offenses. It's a stretch, isn't it, to think that we could live like that? You mean all offenses, Pastor Walker? Yes, all the things that people say they shouldn't have said, yes. All the things they should have said they did not say, yes. Forgiving all, loving people and forgiving them with all the things they do, yes. All the things they should have done that they didn't do, yes. Charles Simeon was a pastor for 54 years in the same church. In the first 10 years of his ministry, this is back in the 1700s because he was a Puritan. The first 10 years, they locked the pews on him. You know, I know we don't do this today, but in the old days, you had pews. They had these arms that came down at the end of them, and they locked. So if you wanted to sit in that pew, you'd literally have to climb over it because the end was locked, and you couldn't get through to sit down in it. And mainly that was used for, because back in the day, for good or bad, you can go to the church in, in Philadelphia, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, they all had their pews. They actually paid for their pews, so you couldn't sit there. To make sure that only the people who bought the pew <laughs> sat there, they would lock it until they come for church, and then unlock it to make sure they were sitting where they wanted to. And of course, the more money you paid, the closer you could sit up front. We're thinking about going that way here at church. <laughs> So the first time Charles Simeon, as a young man, came to his church, they locked the pews out. You know why? Because some of the people in the church really didn't want him to be the pastor. They liked the guy who was the associate pastor under the other guy previous. And so they wanted him, but he didn't want to take it. 
And so they got Charles Simeon and said, and someone didn't like it. So they locked the pews. So the first, listen to this, the first 10 years of his ministry, if you wanted to hear Charles Simeon preach on Sunday morning, you had to come and stand in the aisles. For 10 years. And they did, and he lived with it. After that 10 years was over, they finally unlocked the pews. It took them 10 years to get familiar with Charles Simeon enough to kind of like him. Two years after they unlocked the pews, he was on his way home after preaching a message on Sunday morning. And a guy jumped out from his own church, who was a a member of his church, jumped out from behind a tree and tried to kill him. That's back in the 1700s, right? So that was the first year. And so he stayed there after all of that and never quit, never gave up. 54 years. Earnest love. It was a stretch to stay there for 54 years. But you know what Peter's telling us? If you have the kind of love that you need to have, it's not only going to stretch your heart, it's going to stretch your hospitality. Now listen, he's going to tell us two things. He's going to say, listen, this kind of love, I want you to see how it looks in your house, and then I want you to see how it looks in God's house. So if you have earnest love and you're willing to be stretched and you're willing to give yourself and you're willing to really love like Jesus wants you to love with the end in mind, he says you're going to show hospitality. Now catch this. Hospitality in the first century wasn't, it's not just having somebody you like over for dinner. That's what we call hospitality today. That wasn't it. In the first century, it was having people come over and live in your house for a while. They were going through town. They were Christians. They needed a place to stay. And maybe they had to stay there for a week. And you would keep them. And, and a lot of people would come to your house, and they weren't like you. And that's the important. Listen, this passage is in the context of a culture that was full of tribalism and xenophobia. You know what that is? The fear of strangers, people who aren't like you, and greed. So people didn't want to spend their money on anybody else, and they certainly didn't want to do it if you weren't like them, or you're from another culture, or your skin was another color, or you spoke a different language. They didn't want to do any of those things. And so when Peter says, you know what it looks like to begin with the end in mind? Here's your love. An earnest love will have people in your house, even if they are very, very different than you. Even if they are very much in disagreement with you, you still show them love and have them in your house to stay. That's difficult, isn't it? But see, that's what the church should be about, be the church. We are one new people comprised of all kinds of people, all kinds of people ethically, socially, culturally, politically. Now, what you don't want to leave here today with is and go home, well, I better have some people over who are not like me and disagree with me, and I really don't care for them that much. All right, honey, get it ready. I guess we got to do it. No, because you know what he says? He tacks on the end. Peter, how could you? Without grumbling. Complaining is the word. So you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to connect your heart with your home. He wants you to connect your heart with your hospitality. He doesn't want you just to go through the motions and do the right things. Do it with this earnest love stuff. See how you have to keep it going? Because you can conform on the outside, and you can do all those things on the outside. See, But he says, I want you to stretch yourself relationally. I don't like that, Pastor Walker. I don't like to stretch myself relationally. I don't want to extend myself to others, especially if we don't agree, or they're very different than me. I don't really feel comfortable with that. And that's the idea, isn't it? That's why we have to be commanded to keep doing it, right? To be serious about people, and that's what he wants us to be. 
you have to be serious about. You have to be able to be serious about hospitality. You have to be serious about your heart. And you have to be serious about your humility. In this passage, if you'll notice in verses 8, 9, and 10, three times the phrase one another is used. Right? You see it? Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. And then the third one is serve one another. Three one another's in one tight little package. You know why? Because he's after a mentality. Serve one another. When you do that in your home, you do it in your house. But when you come to church, I want you to do the same thing. So he's not just saying, hey, tack on some really cool things to your life. No, he says, I want you to be a mentality. It doesn't matter whether you're at your house or you come to God's house. What matters most is one another, not you, them. So he says, serve one another. Because you're not the one who owns your gifts. You are the steward of them. And the word means to be a manager. So whether you're speaking, and that's your gift, or whether you're serving, and that's your gift, he says, I want you to do it with everybody else in mind. And now that we're coming off of COVID, and people aren't wearing their masks as much, and you can go out to dinner, and maybe on Memorial Day, you're going to spend time with families. And I think all day long, we're going to go like, isn't it cool not to have a mask on? But you know what else it really means more than that? It means you can have people over for dinner now. You can have people over to your house now. See, you can come to church. It's possible, you know that. You can come to church to give and not get. But most of the time, people come to church to get and not give. You know, you should come to serve, not be served. You are a steward of gifts, not a consumer of goods. If your mentality to walk in this building every Sunday and every time here is what can I get today? What can I get out of the music? What can I get out of the worship? What can I get out of the sermon? What can I get out of other people? See, you've got the wrong mentality. You come to use your gifts and talents not for your sake, but for God and others' sake, see? It's not what you can get primarily. It's what you can give. And Peter, as I said Is developing a church mentality. And what is the church mentality? How do you begin with the end in mind? How do you know? It's because the day that you understand this, that it's not a me mentality, it's a we mentality. That's the only way that you can keep going. That's the only way that you can be willing to cover up anybody else's sin. The only way you can continue loving them, serving them, being hospitable to them, is it's not about you. When it's about you, you won't do it. You'll fail. You'll give up. You don't think there's hope in it. Pastor Walker, how can I have a we mentality all the time? Because praying can sometimes be pretty exhausting like that. It can be. And Pastor Walker, people can be pretty unloving sometimes. And they can. And serving, I'm not sure sometimes it amounts and brings out the consequences and effects I thought it would sometimes. You're right. So how do you keep going? How do you, how do you have a we mentality and kill the old self all the time and, and, and put to death the me mentality? You know how it, well, Peter says, look what it says at the end. He says, by the strength that God supplies. You know what he does? He brings us back to this point that you can't do any of these things by yourself. If you think that you're good enough and you can pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and that you have enough power and ability on your own, you don't. You can't keep that kind of love going. You can't keep that kind of sacrifice and that kind of serving going. You can't keep that hospitality. You can't keep doing it, especially when it's not reciprocated or it's not properly reciprocated. You can't do it. You can only do it if God gives you the ability. My kids, one Christmas, when they were little, my boys, I should say, I bought them a present. They unwrapped it. And you know what it was? Stretch Armstrong. You ever seen them? It was this little guy, he looked like a big-time wrestler or something, you know, on TV. But he, was, he had gel inside of him. 
And you could pull his arms, and they would, I mean, really stretch. I mean, this thing was this big. but I mean, out to as far as I could reach, stretch, you could stretch his legs like this. You could really stretch him. And my, my boys, Lance and Will, they went to town. I mean, they were stretching that guy from day moment one, right? I would see him in another room. I'd say, BJ's in this room, and he's in the, they're stretching him across the hallway. I mean I, I mean, I thought that was amazing, but I'm thinking in my mind, I'm going like, dude, I don't know if he was made to stretch like that. How can, and eventually... With sad faces, one day they came in real down because they stretched his arms off. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever felt that way? I mean, come on, Pastor Walker. I mean, this is a stretch. I mean, this is, you're, you say some people at church just pull my arms off. You ever felt like your legs got pulled off? He's just stretched so much. I, I don't know if I can keep doing. How can I keep loving that? How can I keep doing a Sunday school class when sometimes kids really show up and we have a big number and sometimes they're not even here? It stretches you, doesn't it? And you, listen, eventually your arms and your legs get stretched enough, your heart gets stretched enough, you feel like they're going to come off. Unless God supplies the strength. Unless God gives you the ability. See, you don't need to be gel-filled. You need to be God-filled. That's the only way that you can keep stretching. So, last one. If you're going to begin with the end in mind, you're going to be seriously focused on prayers, on people, and lastly, on purpose. And I'll keep this short. The last of verse 11 says this. In order that. You see the little phrase? It's a purpose clause. What are we doing all of this for? What's the reason behind? What motivates us? How do you keep going? Well, love motivates us, but even more, listen, what are we doing it for? Can I tell you plain and simple? It's God and his purposes. Our church has a purpose statement, and here it is. We exist to be a community of disciples that glorify God, and that's what the last part of the verse is. Glory, glorifying, it's all through that verse. Look for yourself. Our ultimate goal in everything we do is to glorify God. And see, we exist to be a community of disciples that glorify God. How? By loving him supremely and by loving others sacrificially. And put in parentheses behind the word sacrificially, stretch. But until you see how God has loved you sacrificially, you'll never be able to do it for others. So how do you become serious about prayer? You get serious about God. How do you get serious about people? You get serious about God. How do you get serious about purpose? Not events, not incidents, not this or that or the other. You get serious about purpose. God's purpose in the church. What is his purpose? What did he tell us? And that is to go into all the world and make disciples. So when you get serious about his purpose, you're serious about him. And that means this. It's not about me. It's about we because it's about he. Now, that doesn't make grammatical sense, but it makes theological sense, and I wrote it to help myself remember it. It's not about me. It's about we because it's about he. See? So it's not about your glory. It's about his. It's not about, it's not your church. It's his. It's not about your methods. It's his. It's not about him making much of you. It's about you making much of him. It's his purpose. And in this, in this little text, listen, we go from ecle- eschatology, the end is at hand, to ecclesiology, how you live as a church, to doxology at the end. And you know what he says? If you want to get something out of church, you want to get something out of worship, you want to really give God the glory, get into people's lives. 
and get on your knees. True worship, I'm convinced, true worship flows out of a God-centered, God-soaked, God-intoxicated, God-saturated we mentality. So in the end, truthfully, at the verse, isn't it true? I mean, Peter tells you begin with the end in mind, and then he ends with the end in mind, because he says, unto him, to him belong what? Dominion and might, unto the, literally under the ages of the ages, forever and ever, amen. See, he can't get his mind off of it. He starts with what it will be like to stand before Jesus, and then he says, look at me, I'm looking at eternity. And let me tell you this, you're going to never regret the fact that you gave your life like this, and that you put your life into a church, and you put everything, but here's what he says, it's to his glory. It belongs to him. Let's give it to him. You want to? Let's get serious. Let's get serious about living for Jesus because it could be that today we'll stand in front of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I know for many people today, it's a stretch. It's a new way of thinking. It's a paradigm shift in our mentality, in our hearts. But when that happens, Lord, it'll change our hands and feet. And, Lord, we're not denying today that's not always a pretty picture. There are sins that will have to be forgiven and covered, offenses, differences, all kinds of levels. Please, would you supply us with the strength to do that? May you give us the power, the energy, the endurance, the patience, the forgiveness to just keep loving each other because we love you, and mostly because you first loved us. Help us that we might be that kind of church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.